Well, what's up, guys? It's, uh, it's great to be back together with you. If you don't know me, if we've not met, my name's Kyle, uh, one of the staff guys here uh, for Veritas. I don't know what brought you here tonight, uh, but I believe that Jesus wanted you here, and I believe that Jesus wants you to leave changed. And so um, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here with you. If you were here last week, uh, maybe you remember that, that I asked a question. I, I said, how does Jesus use his power? How does Jesus use his power? Does, he, does Jesus use his power to shame us? Does Jesus use his power to manipulate us? Does Jesus use his power to crush us? And maybe you'll remember I said, no, that's not. Jesus doesn't use his power to do any of those things. Jesus uses his power to free us. See, Jesus uses his power to free us, but the question that comes from that is free us from what? If Jesus uses his power to set us free, what is he setting us free from? That's the question that I want to zero in on tonight. But first, uh, I want to show you a picture. This is a uh, picture of an intersection of a city in Japan. Now, uh, at first glance, I mean, aside from it being in a foreign country, this intersection looks like a pretty normal intersection. It seems perfectly fine from the exterior, from the outside, from our perspective. And for the most part, it was until the day that the asphalt opened up and a massive hole formed and it swallowed many, many, many cars. Now, the interesting thing is, is that witnesses here this day, they, they said that this, this massive hole, that it, it happened out of nowhere, that, that it just all of a sudden appeared. One time it wasn't there, the next it was. And on, on the one hand, sure, right? It, it did literally just open up seemingly out of nowhere. But, but, but on the other, they're, they're actually wrong because people that know these kinds of things know that, that though you couldn't see it, that what was happening beneath the asphalt, beneath the pavement, the process that led up to this moment where this hole formed in this intersection it had been going on for years. See, beneath the surface, the soil was eroding completely invisible from above, and yet it was there all along. I'm saying this because the Bible says that, that you and I, it says we have a problem a lot like this sinkhole. And that problem that Kate was talking about earlier is sin. It's sin. See, we might not realize it. Things might seem okay. Things might seem fine, but... But underneath, our sin is there. Sin, it slowly erodes our heart. It slowly erodes our attitudes. It slowly erodes our thoughts. It starts off at times invisible and small, but slowly over time, what happens with that hole is that it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until one day your life starts caving in. You can't contain it anymore. You, you, you can't control it you thought you could, but you can't. See, as that hole opens up, what happens? People fall in and get hurt, yourself included. That's the Bible's picture of, of sin, of what sin does in our lives. Kate said this earlier. She says it always damages. It always destroys. It always distorts. It always deceives and brings destruction to our lives. 
So about a, a hundred or so years ago, um, some editors of a newspaper in London, the, the, I think the Times in London, they got together and they posed a question. And, and this question that they posed is, what's wrong with the world? And they published this question in the newspaper. They sent it out to some of the greatest thinkers, some of the greatest um, um, people of their day, thought leaders of their day. They said, okay, we'd love for you to submit answers to this question. We'll publish it. We'll get a list, a catalog, a catalog of, of answers to the question. But we're curious, what, what do leading thinkers and people of the day, what do they think that is most wrong with the world? And as you can imagine... Right? People start writing in, people start answering, and, and answers range from, from sickness to war to, to economic disparity to, to lack of education. I mean, the, the answers are going on and on and on, and some are long and elaborate, long essays for this newspaper to publish. But, but the editors, they say that of all the responses that they got, many, many, many responses, all the responses they get, the, the answer that stud, stuck, out, stuck out the most, words are hard, stuck out the most was a four-word essay written by a man named G.K. Chesterton, a Christian, to the question, what's wrong with the world? This is how he answered. He said, dear sir, I am. What's wrong with the world? Dear sir, I am. See, what, what G.K. Chesterton knew is that what was really wrong with the world, at least at a root level, was sin. And he knew even more that sin isn't just out there. He knew it was in here. He knew it wasn't just outside. He knew that sin was inside. And so when he's asked the question, what's wrong with the world, G.K. Chesterton, he says, dear sir, I am. It's me. Now, I wonder if, if, I, had, if I had just thrown that question out to you. If I had said, hey, there's several hundred of you here tonight, and, and I'm just curious, what does Gen Z think is wrong with the world? What do you think is wrong with the world? What would you have said? What kinds of things are coming to mind even now as I ask that question? What's wrong with the world? Is that, is that how you would have answered? Is that what you would have said? Or maybe to get a little more specific, is that how you see yourself? Do you see your sin as your biggest problem? Do you see your sin as your biggest problem? Because according to the Bible, it is. According to the Bible, our sin is our bigger, biggest problem. It's far bigger than our anxiety. It's far bigger than, than our breakup. It's far worse than the conflict we're having with our friends. It's far worse than any medical diagnosis we can get. It's far worse than our loneliness or our financial problems. Now, of course, those are all real problems. And I know several of you enough to know that those are not just ethereal, abstract, but those are real problems that, that you have. And they're significant problems that, that many people in this room are wrestling with right now. And so I'm not trying to undermine them. I'm just saying that according to the Bible, all of those things, any answer that we can give pales in comparison to the problem of sin in our lives. And so if you'll grant that's true with me for a second, if that's true, if every problem in the world pales 
in comparison to sin, the problem of sin, then, then we need to make sure that we understand what exactly is sin. Sin's one of these interesting words that I think in our culture, it, it, it's kind of lost some of its meaning. Like, we kind of know it's bad. It's, it's this religious word, but, but it, it kind of also sometimes gets used as, as kind of a sneaky good thing. And what does it even mean anymore? Well, the Bible says that at a basic level, sin is this. Sin is a failure. If you want to think about sin, think about it like this. Sin is a failure to love God and other people. In other words, our sin problem it's a relationship problem. See, I think sometimes we tend to think of sin as, as breaking a rule, but the Bible talks about it far more often as, as betraying a relationship. We think that, that sin is, is it's just breaking an arbitrary rule, but, but how the Bible tends to talk about sin is, is it says that, that, that we, we kind of betray a relationship, and that relationship that we primarily betray is a relationship with God, but also with other people. And so on one level, maybe at a basic level, sin is a failure to love God and others. Then the question becomes, well, why do we do that? Why is it that you and I sin? Why do we fail to love God? Why do we fail to love other people, people in this room that God calls us to? Why, why do we fail to do that? If you were uh, with us a few weeks ago at, at Camp Veritas, you're going to recognize this quote. But there's a Spanish priest back in the 1500s, and, and he said it like this. He said sin. He says, when you think about sin, sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is, my only, is only my deepest happiness. So you see what he's saying there? He's saying sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only, in other words, God wants my greatest happiness. My sin convinces me otherwise. And so, which is to say here that, that we sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. And so if sin is a failure to love God and others, why do we sin? Well, we, we sin because we believe a lie, we're fed a lie about what will make us happy. We think we know better than Jesus. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark and, and we've been asking the question, who is Jesus? And, and we see that Jesus is the one who heals the sick and, and gives sight to the blind. Jesus is the one who walks on water and the one who stops a storm with his mouth. He's the one who casts out demons and, and brings people back to life. And we think we know better than him. We think we know what will make us happy. We think we know better than the God who made the world and everything in it. And so we fail to love him. We fail to obey him. We fail to listen to him. Now think about that for a second. Think about how, how silly it is to say to God, I know better. Think about how silly that is, that God tells us how to live. Not because he wants to make us unhappy, because he has a definition of happiness that's often different. He tells us, this is what's going to make you flourish. This is how to flourish. This is how to have the good life. And what we do is we say, now nah, we know better. Think about how silly that is to say to God that we know better than him. Now, maybe you're thinking, I don't actually say that with my words. That's fine. But we say it. I say we because I do it too. We say it with our lives all the time, don't we? We say it with the way that we live. Ah, God, I know better. I know you say that, but I, you know, nah. Here's the thing. 
Sin's not silly. Kate said this. Sin's really serious. It's not silly. It's, it's, it's serious. And, and more than it's serious, it brings real consequences to our lives. So remember that sinkhole? Well, this is how Romans 6, the first half of verse 23 says. It says, for the wages of sin is death. Now, I highlighted this word wages right here because I, I think it's interesting that, you know, when we think about wages, wages are, are things that when we work, we, we earn. Or, or maybe more specifically, I deserve a wage for doing something that I'm paid to do. And so the Bible says here that, that what we earn, go back to that, what we earn, or more specifically, what we deserve because of sin is death. We deserve death, both physically and spiritually, which is to say that what sin does is it separates us from God. Now, if you're like, dude, lay off the gas pedal for a second, okay, I will for a bit. The reason I'm saying all that, though, is because I think all of that, it sets up the backdrop for what's happening in our passage tonight. So if you've been kind of journeying with us this semester, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, one of the biographies of, of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Bible. And, and I don't know about you, but it's been so good for my own heart just to sit and look and wrestle with who is Jesus and what does that mean for our life. And if, if you've kind of been with us, you know that the first half of, of the Gospel of Mark, it, it kind of centers on, on this question, who is Jesus? And it kind of just drills at that question. In the second half of Mark, there's 16 chapters. So the first half, who is Jesus? The second half, what did Jesus come to do? What is Jesus' purpose? And that's the question that I want to zoom in on tonight in our passage. We're picking up, we're in chapter 14. It's the last night of Jesus' life. It's the last night of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, not Matthew, Mark 14, picking up in verse 12. On the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So real quick, what I want you guys to know, there's some context here, this Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a festival. I want you to know that what's happening here is that tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jews have come into and back to Jerusalem for this feast. So, so there are quite literally people everywhere for this feast. And Mark continues and says this. Maybe. Thank you. So he sent two of his disciples. So Jesus sends two of his disciples telling them, he says, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, I want to pause here for a second because maybe you're wondering, okay, you just told me there are hundreds of thousands of people in this city and, and, and Jesus sends a couple dudes into the city amidst the crowd to find a guy carrying a, a jar of water. What's up with that? Well, and the reason this is significant is because that, that men didn't often carry water. This is, sorry, ladies, this is primarily something that, that women did back then. And so what's happening here is that it actually would have been kind of easy to spot a dude carrying a, a jar of water. And so when Jesus says to the disciples, go and find this guy carrying a jar of water and meet him and follow him and do what he said, it's almost like Jesus has arranged this meeting. 
And he continues, follow him, say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So I, I want to talk about this word Passover. I highlighted it because we saw it maybe a few different times in that set of verses. Maybe you've heard that word. Maybe this is literally the first time you've heard it. You're wondering what it means. And, and I think it's important. The reason I want to pause because what it does is understanding the word Passover is the key to unlocking everything that Jesus is about to do in the rest of this passage. And so what's happening with, with the word Passover, what's happening is that for Jews then, and, and to be honest, even, even now, Jews, they, they would come back to Jerusalem. It's this annual feast that they would have together that commemorated one of the most significant moments, one of the most important moments in the history of Israel. See, thousands of years before this time that Jesus is, is referring to in the book of Exodus, which is the, the second book of the Old Testament, it recounts for us a time when God's people, the Israelites, they're, they're enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. Pharaoh is kind of the king in Egypt, and, and Exodus tells us about the time that God's people are enslaved in Egypt. And what happens is that God is is telling Pharaoh to let his people go, but Pharaoh won't let go of his grip. And so what does God do? He sends plagues. You've heard of the ten plagues, yeah? God starts sending plagues, and, 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 and these afflictions are coming on the people, and, and, and God is sending plagues into Egypt to get Pharaoh to relinquish his grip on the Israelites, to let his people go, and he sends plague after plague after plague, and Pharaoh says, no, 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 I won't let your people go. And so God sends one final plague, one final act of divine justice for their disobedience. And this is what we read. This is Exodus chapter 12, picking up in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, these Israelites, this is this month, sorry, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. One for each household. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The, lo the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So it's a pretty intense passage. Maybe you've never heard that story before. But this is the background of what's happening in Mark. God tells the Israelites... That judgment is coming. 
judgment is coming. And what I want you to notice is that it's coming for everyone. It's not just coming for the Egyptians. It says everyone, people, and also animals. So, so God says, look, judgment is coming. Jews and Egyptians alike. Someone, he says, is going to die unless they take shelter under a substitute, under the blood of a sacrificial lamb. And God says that if you took shelter under the blood of that sacrificial lamb, that God's wrath, his divine justice, would pass over you. And you were saved. And that's what God did. Later that night, that's exactly what happened. And all those that took shelter under the substitute, all those that put the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doorpost above and on the side, all those that took shelter under the sacrificial lamb, the substitute, the blood of the lamb, were passed over, were spared, saved, and set free. And that's what God does. And he rescues the Israelites and they get out of Egypt. And so back to Mark, that's exactly what's going on. See, people are in Jerusalem. I said tens, hundreds of thousands of people have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the OG Passover, this most important moment in Israel's history. But what happens is that Jesus is about to do something that nobody had ever done before. He's about to rewrite the script. He's about to reinterpret the meaning and the symbolism of the Passover for the first time and for the rest of history. And so this is what he says. Maybe Mark 14, 22 says, while they were eating, while they're eating the Passover meal, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. Take it, eat, this is my body. And Jesus says, take this bread, it's my body. See, the interesting thing about this meal, when, when, when this Passover meal would happen, there was often um, kind of a presider, someone who would kind of be, be doing different things during the meal, saying different things, and, and they would talk about um, kind of the symbolism of, of uh, the meal and what was happening. And so in, in this particular case, what often would happen is, is when they were talking about the bread, that, that someone would stand up and, and, and say something like, you know, this is the bread of, of the Israelites' affliction, of the affliction of our forefathers. This is, this is the symbolism of, of their affliction. When they were in Egypt, and when they were wandering through the wilderness, after they'd been set free. But what happens is that Jesus, he goes off script. He says something different. He breaks the mold that's literally been repeated for thousands of years, and he says, no, this is my body. Which is to say, Jesus is saying that this bread, it's my suffering. It's the bread of my suffering. See, it's symbolic. What Jesus is saying here is this bread is symbolic of my suffering and my deliverance. The deliverance that I'll bring to my people once and for all from the slavery of sin. He's rewriting the script. And he goes on. It says, then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
he said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. See, what's happening here is, remember, I said it's the last night of Jesus' life. What Jesus knows is that he's about to die. Jesus knows that this is the last meal that he will ever have with his friends. He's about to die. And even more, what he knows is that his blood becomes the shelter by which they escape we escape the judgment of sin. See, it's really interesting that, that in this meal, you know, this wasn't, a, this wasn't supposed to be a vegetarian meal. You've got wine, you've got bread. What are we missing? We're missing the lamb, right? There's no mention of the lamb that's supposed to be slaughtered and eaten. I like how Tim Keller says it. He says it like this. He says, there was no lamb on the table because the Lamb of God was at the table. There was no lamb on the table because the Lamb of God was at the table. See, hundreds of years before this moment, in the, uh, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he says this about the coming Messiah, the coming future king that would one, one day deliver his people from the, their sin. He says this, he says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led, this is hundreds of years before Jesus, prophesying about the future king, this future Messiah that would deliver his people like a lamb to the slaughter. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Hundreds of years before what's happening in Mark, Isaiah prophesies like a lamb led to the slaughter. Earlier in Jesus' life, in the Gospel of, of John, John the Baptist, different John, he sees Jesus walking at one point, and he says in, in chapter 1, verse 29, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, John the Baptist saw Jesus walking one day, and he shouts to everyone who can listen. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. He's talking to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, what Jesus is saying at the Passover meal with his disciples, that he's the lamb that all other lambs have always pointed to, that he's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And it's not just the sins of the world. It's your sin and my sin. See, I, I said earlier I said that Jesus wants to set us free. Jesus wants to set you free. Jesus wants to set me free. But set us free from what? What Jesus wants to set us free from is sin. See, he wants to set you free from your slavery to sin. He wants to save you from judgment. Jesus wants to save you from the judgment that you deserve which is exactly what Jesus does on the cross. It's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. He took what we deserved. He took our guilt, our shame, our sin, the justice we deserved, and he took that upon himself. He let it fall on him. See, I want you to listen to me. Jesus took that judgment upon himself 
on your behalf so that you could be passed over forever. So that verse in Romans 6, we read the first half, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we deserve death, this verse says, but God does what? He gifts us eternal life in Jesus if we believe. You and I, we deserve death because of sin, but God in his grace, in his love, in his mercy, he gifts us eternal life if we believe in Jesus. And so the question is, do you? Is that who you're trusting in? And if I could just ask, if, if the answer is no or, or I'm not sure, if I could just ask, what, I, I, I'm saying this without judgment, like what's holding you back? What's holding you back from going all in with Jesus? I'd love to talk to you about it. Come find me sometime. I'd, I'd love to talk to you. What's holding, because here's the reality. The reality is, is that whether we believe in him or not, whether we recognize it or not, whether we see it or not, sin really is our biggest problem. And sin really does bring consequences to our lives. So it's interesting, um, in the Gospel of Luke, so a different Gospel, Luke is retelling this, this same story, this Passover meal, and uh, largely says the exact same thing, except it's interesting because uh, on one of the verses, he, he adds a, a few other words. This is what he says. So Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, to the disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. This is what Luke adds. That Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus says that, that, that we are to do this, take the bread, take the wine, eat it, drink it, we're to do it in remembrance of him, which is exactly what Christians have been doing for the last 2,000 years. It's exactly what Christians have been doing the last 2,000 years. We call it the Lord's table or, 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 or taking communion. You see, it's interesting that that word communion, it, it comes from a Greek word which just means to give thanks. And so when we take communion together, when Christians come to the Lord's table, when we take communion, that's what we're doing. We're giving thanks to God. We're remembering what Jesus has done in his death and in his resurrection. And the thing about taking communion, it's not just that, that we remember. It's not just that we give thanks. It's that we actually receive Jesus and we receive the promises that, that he gives to us in faith. Promises that, that Jesus will, like Kate said, forgive our sins. Promises that, that Jesus will, will be present with us. Promises that Jesus will, will nourish and satisfy us. That, that Jesus will grow us and, and strengthen us and, and help us persevere in following him. And so we give thanks and we remember, but we also we receive Jesus. And so just to remind us what, what Jesus did on that night with his friends, he, it says he, he took some bread and, and, and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body. Take and eat. 
And then it says that, that he took some wine and, and he says, this is my blood poured out for many. Take and drink. See, what Jesus is saying to them and what he's saying to us is that it's his blood, his body. That's the only thing. Jesus is the only thing, the only one who will set us free from our slavery to sin. And so we're going to take communion together tonight. And if you're believing in Jesus, if you're believing in what I just said, that Jesus is the only one who can set us free, then in a second I'm going to invite you to come forward. Staff, you guys can come forward. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you have offered us yourself. That in the face of our sin, which is real and brings consequences, that you have offered a way to be free, that you have offered a way out of judgment. The miraculous thing is the way that you do that is by offering yourself. You give your body, your blood as a substitute on our behalf. You get what we deserve. We get life with you. And so I pray for myself and my friends here tonight. I pray that, that we would see our sin more clearly. But that more than that, we would see our need for you. And not just see it, but that we would want you. Oh, Jesus, help us to love you. We're so thankful for what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray.